Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, we'll begin in a moment at verse 1. Acts 20, verse 1. Have you ever been part of a situation where a worship service, a church service, was disrupted in some way? Perhaps the weather prevented the people from gathering. There was too much snow or, or, you know, down south a hurricane came through and you couldn't gather for worship. I was part of a church one time where we arrived on Sunday morning and there was no power in the building. And we didn't have wonderful windows like we've got here, that church, so we had to pick up and move everything out into the lobby so that we'd have some light by which to see. The power was trying to prevent the worship service. I've been in situations where health has been a disruption to a worship service. Someone passes out, collapses, goes down in the midst of the service. One time the EMTs had to be called, the paramedics had to be called, and the person had to be put on a stretcher and taken away, and it was a disruption to the service. I was part of a service one time where a dancer, thankfully I was not preaching, a dancer stood up and began to express the heartfelt joy of what was being said by twirling around in the midst of the service. That was a distraction, to be sure. I will let you know when that occurred, it was a lay elder who was preaching that Sunday. He did a fantastic job of going on and pressing on. It was amazing. Um, I was in a service, sadly, one time where a heckler, in the middle of the sermon, began to yell at the pastor. I've actually seen this twice, Um, once in my childhood, once in adulthood, where someone began to chastise and scold and yell at the pastor right in the middle of the sermon. And of course, we've had worship disrupted in the last few months by this pandemic, has impeded our ability to worship. What about death? Would death be a good reason to have a worship service come to an end? You know, there is, and this is a true story, there was a PCA pastor some years back who was in the pulpit and he recited, he said, my favorite verse is the one that says, you know, for, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And he literally dropped dead that very moment in the pulpit. Do you press on? Do you continue in the service? What do you do? Well, this morning, we have a text before us that contains a lot of different uh, interesting things, some names and some locations, and kind of a feels like a little bit of a hodgepodge of stuff thrown together. But in the center of it is a disrupted worship service, and we're going to see how it was handled here in this early church in the city of Troas, as we consider Acts 20 this morning. Join me now as we read Acts 20, starting in verse 1, and I'll remind us that, the, that here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. By that we mean this, that it is this book and this alone that will guide us without error, without mistake, into all truth. And if we want to know how important preaching is, if we want to understand the centrality of worship in the life of the church, we must understand this book. Join me now in reading in Acts 20, starting in verse 1. 
And after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Pater the Berean, son of uh, uh, Pyrrhus, uh, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, uh, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, uh, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the, sh uh, to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged intending, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at uh, Assos, we took him on board and went to uh, my, uh, Miletan. Uh, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. Uh, the next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible on the day of Pentecost. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather this morning and consider this text, we ask that you would guide our understanding of it. Let us see in these strange places and strange uh, names of people that we would see you speaking to us, you giving us information by which we might understand how to live as Christians, how to live as disciples and followers of our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you may notice, if you look at the bulletin, that we have the usual place for sermon notes, but no outline. And that's simply because when it came time to send the bulletin to press, to get it printed and stapled and folded, I didn't have a clue what I was going to say about this text. And in fact, the title of the text was just kind of a placeholder, and I never came up with a better one, and so it's still in there. I didn't know what to say about this text. I was bewildered. What do you do with this? It's a collection of strange names and strange places, and Luke seems to be just jumping from this to this to this to this to this. Oh, stop, let me tell you this funny story about what happened. Oh, then get back to just jumping to this and this and this. And it seems like a bit of a misfit text, a placeholder. It serves nothing more than to explain how Paul got from Ephesus to Miletus, because what we're going to see in the second half of Acts 20 is one of the richest, one of the deepest, one of the most wonderful pastoral passages in the entire New Testament. 
It is a beautiful text. And it seems like Luke is simply trying to explain how to get from point A to point B in the text. And that this has no other purpose. And yet, I do believe those words that Paul penned to Timothy that say all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so I turned to the commentaries. And they gave me some facts and some figures and some information about the time, but nothing preachable. So I decided to turn to my fellow pastors, and on my run yesterday morning, I listened to a couple of sermons on this text. While I was painting yesterday afternoon in my house, I listened to a couple of sermons about this text. You know what was interesting? Every single one of them started out like this. I don't know what to say about this text. So I'm not alone. I'm in good company. No, but there are things here that we can gather, that we can get out of this and come to an understanding of why it's here. First, let me just say this. The very information that Luke gives us, the facts, the figures, the names, the number of days it took to sail, the islands they stopped at as they were sailing, provides for us a sense of the historicity of the book of Acts. It is a reminder to us that the book of Acts is a researched document. That Luke was not making this up. And in fact, remember, Acts is volume two of a two-part work. Volume one is the Gospel of Luke. And we're reminded back there, the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes to, he says, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke imparts to us a sense of that certainty. These things really happened. These are real people and real places in real time. Luke, the book of Acts is not a, a myth that, that intends to describe the origin of the church. It happened, it, it developed sometime in the past, and nobody knows how, so Luke just made up the book of Acts to explain it. No, it is not mythology. Nor is the book of Acts parable. It is not a collection of made-up stories that, though fictitious, do teach some real truth. No. It is history. These things happened. And Luke says, you want to know? Here are the people and the places and the times that are involved. I don't want to belabor that point any further, but I don't want to pass over it lightly either. We must see an acts, an account of actual history. These things really happened. We also see there, uh, we also gather from there, a sense of the corporate nature of the work that was happening. We sometimes think of Paul as this super apostle, this, this mighty man of God who could just go it alone. The guy who just rode out into the pagan lands and on the power of his own uh, 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 excellent speaking and, and debating, his reasoning. and the He just conquered the pagan world through his own power. And yet, what do we see here but just the opposite? That Paul is not doing this alone. We see Sopater, who is also named at the end of Romans. Romans 16, he comes up again there, a man from Berea. We see Aristarchus and Secundus. Aristarchus is mentioned in Colossians and in Philemon as an important 
aid to Paul's work. Secundus is also, those two are both from Thessalonica. Um, we see Gaius. This is probably not the same Gaius we saw in chapter 19. Um, pretty common name back then. Uh, Gaius in chapter 19 was described as being from Macedonia. This Gaius is described as being from Derby. And if you're not up on your ancient history, uh, geography, I mean, uh, uh, Macedonia is in what is modern-day northern Greece, and Derby was in what is today Turkey. So these are not probably the same man. We see mention of Timothy, who came from Lystra. We see uh, 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 Tychicus, who is mentioned in Ephesians, Colossians, Timothy, and Titus, an important man in the life of Paul. Trophimus, who is mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4. What we see here is this. that You cannot do ministry. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. Paul could not. Paul needed others to travel with him to be on the road with him, to provide fellowship and comfort, to be for him a source of encouragement. We have read here how he was encouraging to the others, but when we read these names in the, in the other contexts, the other places where I've mentioned them, in Romans and in Philemon and in Colossians and in Timothy and Titus, what we see there is Paul saying, and they were an encouragement to me. These people blessed me. <clears throat> we must not think of Christianity is something we do on our own. There is no sense anywhere in the scriptures of the Lone Ranger believer, the one who, by strength of their own character, just pushes through and gets it done. I appreciated the music uh, ministry this morning, selecting hymns that stressed and emphasized the corporate Nature, the fellowship, the unity that is found in the body of Christ. We need one another. We need to come alongside one another, encourage one another, push one another on. And we will talk more about the how of that in a moment. Support one another, uplift one another, rejoice with and mourn with one another. We need that. We also see here, And this is a little less obvious. It's not just for the sake of encouragement that we have this multiple uh, 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 list of people, but did you notice how they're geographically diverse? We've got uh, one from Berea, two from Thessalonica, one from Derby, one from Lystra, two from Asia Minor. Part of what's going on, and it's a little less obvious here, why is Paul, Paul's in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem before Pentecost? Why? Well, what we gather from his other writings, or from Paul's writings, this is not, it's not other, but Paul's writings, what we see in 1 Corinthians 16, in 2 Corinthians 8, and in Romans 15, is that Paul was taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. The church, the mother church back in Jerusalem, had fallen on hard times. There was famine in Israel, and there was persecution back there. And Paul has asked the Gentile churches to collect money and to take it back to that mother church back in Jerusalem as a blessing to them, as an encouragement to them. And Paul has gathered a group of men from a diverse set of churches, not merely to be for him an encouragement, but also to be for him a source of accountability. Paul is not going to take control of these funds on his own. 
He is not going to. The Apostle Paul said, I am not above the suspicion of mishandling this money. I am not going to say, well, I'm an apostle. I can handle the funds of the church and I don't need anybody looking over my shoulder. I'm amazed at how often these sorts of things happen in churches. When I was an administrator of a church, um, I can remember one time we, we had somebody ask for reimbursement and we asked for a receipt and they were indignant. Indignant that they had to provide a receipt. Well, if you lost it, you lost it, and we can work around that. But, but why are you angry? We're not. If Paul was going to be accountable with the funds of the church, surely you and I need to be accountable with regard to everything over which we steward. It's not just the money. We need to be accountable with regard to our time, with regard to our re- property and resources, with regard to the blessings that God has given us, with regard to our talents and skills. We see in here that Paul is gathering up the money from these churches, rushing to get back to Jerusalem in time to distribute it. When the church gathers for Pentecost, that's a a time where he can bless them by distributing this wealth. And he wants to be there in a timely manner to make that happen. But he's not going to do this on his own. In ministry, we must never think that we can or should go it alone. We cannot, in our own strength, make it through. And we should not try to do so. We need the accountability we have to one another. We need the encouragement we get from one another. Paul certainly displays that in this text. We also see here, having seen the... the, the uh, 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 The historicity that's demonstrated here, having seen the companionship and the fellowship that's demonstrated here, we also see in this text something of the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. He is not a missionary who simply wants to uh, uh, drop off the word of God, leave behind the gospel, and then move on. Yes, Paul does talk about wanting to go to new fields. Yes, he does talk about, in in his epistles, about hoping to be able to get to Rome someday and then go beyond Rome to Spain maybe at some point. But he also talks regularly about doubling back and going back to the places where he had previously ministered and encourage them. We see this here. Look, uh, and by the way, what we see here, uh, uh, so he, 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 he sets out, he goes back through uh, Macedonia, revisits those churches, uh, reminder of some of those Philippi, Thessalonica, uh, um, Berea, and, uh, and he goes down. He ends up, this time he says, uh, Luke says he ends up in Greece. Um, previously in the book of Acts, that's been referred to as Achaia. That is the southern part of Greece. The city of Corinth is located there. And he ends up back in Corinth. From, his, from the uh, book of 2 Corinthians, we know that these three months in Greece are spent in Corinth, in in that city. And it's there that he writes the the book of Romans. The epistle to the the church in Rome is written during this time right here. It's the winter, most scholars believe. These three months are probably the winter of of either 56 going into 57 or 57 going into 58. We're not exactly sure, but it's one of those two winters that he spends here in Corinth. Can't sail. It's not fun to travel in those conditions. So he hunkers down in Corinth, spends some time ministering to them, and then writes 
the letter to the Romans. Um, in case you're thinking that you can just while away your winter and wait for spring, let's not forget that Paul wrote Romans during the winter. Maybe we should do something productive with our winter. Not that you're going to write an inspired book. I understand that. But nevertheless, we should desire to use our time well. So he gets ready to sail. He's going to be ready to sail away from Corinth, from the, uh, the, the port there in Cor- uh, just down the hill from Corinth. And he hears wind of a plot against him. And instead of sailing, he decides to return, to return by land. So he heads back to Macedonia. Probably the plot. I mean, come on, aboard a ship. You know, Paul leaves Corinth on the ship. The ship arrives in, in, in Philippi or Troas, and people are waiting for him. And where's Paul? And he, I don't know. Well, Paul, who's Paul? You know, I don't remember any Paul. Because the Jews are going to just, whoops, nudge him accidentally. Oh, oh that railing wasn't as secure as we thought. And he goes over the side and is lost at sea, never to be heard from again. And to avoid that, he stays on land and walks. And we see here that Luke is with him again. We see the we pronoun being used again. That Luke is now, Luke lives in Philippi. He's come through Philippi and is returning through Philippi. And Luke has rejoined the traveling group. Eventually, we see him leave out of Philippi and head to Troas. It took five days, according to the text, to sail from Philippi to Troas. That's a long time. So apparently, the conditions were not yet good. Winter was over, but the best days of spring had not yet arrived, and the traveling was tough. Five days is a bit long for that journey, even by ancient standards. He arrives in Troas. If you're curious, Troas is on what would be a modern-day Turkey on the northwest coast of what would be modern-day Turkey, back then Asia Minor. Um, he arrives there in Troas, and he's going to spend a week with them. And now we get to this, this interesting story about this young man named Eutychus falling asleep during the sermon. And I'm going to guess that many of you, when I started my sermon by saying, what do you do with this text? A few of you were probably thinking to yourself, well, the clear application, Pastor, is that you shouldn't preach too long. I would argue the clear application is you shouldn't fall asleep in church. I think we're both wrong. There is other points to be made. Before we jump into this account of Eutychus, let's set the scene to understand what Paul's doing there in Troas. Go back to verses 1 and 2 of the text. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. That word encouraging is a, is a Greek word that can also mean exhorting. That same word has appeared multiple times in the book of Acts with the idea of exhorting, um, preaching, challenging, urging. Remember when Lydia uh, comes to know the Lord and she urges them to go back to her house? Same word. This idea of challenging and exhorting. Then in verse 2, we see it again. What do we see there in verse 2? When he had gone through those regions, he had given, and, and had given them much encouragement. Verse 2 there, literally, uh, um, for, for each and every, you know, the, the, the literal word there, is, is he was urging them with much word. Singular. Logos. He's urging, encouraging, exhorting them with much word. What is he doing? He's preaching. 
He's preaching. He's giving them the Word of God. He's giving them the Bible. You see, we tend to think of encouragement as saying something nice about somebody. You're okay. You're going to make it. Buck up. You're good to go. As if that was encouragement. But biblical encouragement doesn't look like that. Biblical encouragement is not, you're okay. Biblical encouragement is, you're in the hands of the one who is okay. You're in the hands of the one who died for you. Be courageous. To be encouraged biblically means literally that, to be given courage. You can have courage because Jesus told you that these days were going to come. He said if they, if they hate the teacher, how much more are they going to hate the disciples? He told us that and we're reminded of that. And so we aren't discouraged when opposition arises. We're reminded that even Jesus faced opposition. We're reminded that Jesus is the one we may face opposition on this earth, but we don't face opposition in eternity. For Jesus stood on the cross, hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that while the world may forsake us, Jesus has stood in our place so that God will never forsake us. That's encouragement. And of course, we read in the book of Thessalonians, um, there in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul writes, tells them to, to encourage one another with these words. Well, with what words? Well, the previous verses are all about the second coming. So we can be encouraged by looking back to what Jesus has done, but we can be encouraged by looking forward to what he is yet going to do. He is coming back. He's returning. He's not leaving us here for all of eternity. We are not in this by ourselves. We are not on our own. And that should make us courageous. Paul is encouraging them, exhorting them, urging them with much word. He is preaching a lot. And then we see this account in verse 7. This, now, before we go any further... I need to tell you something. We need a little lesson here in Greek. We need to look at the word Eutychus. I sometimes wish that we would translate names rather than transliterate the name. For Eutychus is a fascinating name. You may know the word part you. You've heard it in the word eulogy. A eulogy is a good word about the deceased. You means good. And this word, uh, this word part, uh, Atychus, uh, that's one we probably don't know. But it has the idea of chance, of something that happens, just happenstance, uncontrolled. Tychus has this, like, rolling dice, Tychus. His name, this young man's name is Good Chance. What would we call that today? We'd nickname him Lucky. This man's name is Lucky. Now, think about that story. I actually wonder if he got the name after this happened. If the Nick, you're lucky Paul was there that day. So we have this interesting story of Paul in Troas getting ready to depart the next day. 
And it says on the first day of the week, this is the, by the way, if you're curious, this is the first time in scripture that we see Christians explicitly gathering on Sunday, on the first day. We see other references later to it. It seems to become the pattern. We saw just a couple of uh, weeks ago where the, the Christians had left the synagogue and, and taken up uh, in Ephesus. Paul had begun to, to preach and teach in the hall of Tyrannus, the school of Tyrannus. Well, now we see that they are also meeting on Sunday rather than on Saturday. Sunday was not yet a, a, a day off back then in that culture, and so they're gathered in the evening. They have to work during the day, and they gather in the evening and Paul, getting ready to leave the next day, doesn't want to leave without saying goodbye. And how does he say goodbye? He's going to preach again. He is going to share with them. Now, verse 9, the wording there is a little interesting. In, in English, the passive voice is considered kind of a, a weak form. You remember, uh, go, go back and re- I don't know what you guys were like. My eighth grade English teacher, she must have hated me. I was the guy who said, when am I ever going to need this? When am I ever going to use this? This is dumb. I I owe Mrs. Nelson a big apology because here I am using it. Just a reminder, the active voice is when the subject is prominent. Bill threw the ball. Bill is the subject and is prominent. The passive voice is when the subject is uh, is less prominent or maybe omitted altogether. The ball was thrown. Perhaps the ball was thrown by Bill. But either way, we make the object prominent. Well, passive is common in the scriptures, and we sometimes see it translated, and sometimes, for sake of style, the translators put it into the active voice. This is passive. Notice in our translation, it says, the young man Eutychus is falling asleep. But in the Greek, it says, sleep was coming upon him. And there's something interesting in the book of Acts, and in fact, throughout Luke's writings, in the Gospel of Luke also. Luke frequently uses the passive voice, does not mention the subject, and he wants us to assume that the actor is God. It's called the divine passive. And I wonder here if we're not meant to see the divine passive. We're not to see this as a, a, a young man who, who you know, was disrespectful of Paul, that he was sleeping during the sermon, But rather what we see here is God orchestrating a set of events for his particular purpose. That sure makes a lot more sense to me as to why Luke would feel the need to include this. So that what happened was sleep came upon this young man. And he's propped up in the window because he's wanting some fresh air. Maybe he was in the middle of the room earlier, but as he felt that sleep coming on, he made his way over to the window, hoping some fresh air would keep him awake. And he's sitting in the window, and they didn't have screens back then, so the window is just open. And he loses his battle with sleep. And you know that feeling, that jerking feeling. He jerks, but it's too late. And he goes over the edge. It's interesting, our, our text here, I don't know why, they, every other translation I looked at talks about how Paul threw himself on Eutychus. This says he bent over Eutychus. Not sure why they chose that. But we have this picture of Paul, it's, a, it's an Elijah-like picture, of Paul throwing himself on the young man, laying right on top of him. And while everybody stands around going, what is he doing? What is going on here? 
Paul looks up and said his life is in him. It's not that he, not, Paul's not saying he didn't die. Paul's not saying his life has stayed in him. Paul is saying his life is now presently in him. Yes, the analysis that he was taken up dead was a correct analysis. Yes, he was dead, but now he's not. And Paul is given an opportunity by God's grace to be shown to have the kind of power that is associated with men like Peter, who earlier in the book of Acts raised someone from the dead. Men like Elijah, who were given the power to raise people from the dead. And a man like Jesus who did the same. One of the things we see here is God's uh, mark on Paul. You know, it's amazing to me how the church today gets a little... little, There's there's an anti-Pauline thread in the church today. That Paul is responsible for everything that's wrong with the church. That Paul, uh, uh, he's the one that got the church started on on its... its, uh, 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 anti-Semitic, anti-feminist way and set Paul, Paul set the church all wrong. If we had just, if we would just follow Jesus and ignore Paul, we'd be so much better off. And yet here's Jesus saying, no, Paul is my guy. Paul is my messenger. And if you doubt it, look at the power I have given him. He is my man. And the young boy is uh, 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 revived and resurrected, and he's alive again. And they all, everybody's standing around, and everybody's heart is racing, and they're talking, and all this commotion, Paul just says, you know what, ain't none of us going to be able to concentrate, let's just have the benediction, y'all go home. This isn't what happens, is it? Rather, Paul says, let's grab a bite to eat, give ourselves a moment to calm our minds, clear our let our heart races, heart beats come back down to a normal level. And then he resumes preaching. I don't know that I'm necessarily saying that if we have somebody drop dead in one of our worship services, we've got to go back to the sermon. I'm not sure that's the conclusion I want to draw from this. But I do want to say this. Given an opportunity... What's the most important thing in this moment? What should we do right now? The Apostle Paul said, let's get back to the Word of God. And I do have to wonder what that means for us. What priority do we put on the worship service and on the preached Word of God? Is it something that we will do anything to be a part of? Oh, and I'm not saying there's no time. You're sick, you're sick, you stay home. We don't want your germs. Stay home. And if you're snowed in, you're snowed in. There are real, legitimate reasons to not be in worship. But we we should not be looking for them. We should not be celebrating them. We should not. I get it. When you're a kid and you roll over and you look out the window and it's all snow. Around here, it's not snow so much as fog. You know, you look out, you see the fog. Growing up in the upper Midwest, I looked out and saw the snow. And I was like, oh, there's going to be no school today. We shouldn't feel that way about worship. If we have to cancel, we cancel. But we should mourn the fact that we cannot gather together. We cannot hear our God speak to us. We cannot encourage one another. We cannot hold one another accountable. If we have to close worship for whatever reason, it ought to be something that pains us. 
It ought to be something we deeply regret. In this text, we see the historicity of the book of Acts. We see the people who supported Paul and held him accountable and came alongside him and encouraged him. We see Paul's desire to be an encouragement to others, to bring them much word, to share the word of God with them a great deal. And we see, even when this moment of this dramatic story of this young man dying, Paul's number one concern is that the word be completed that the sermon be finished, that we get what matters more. Yes, you guys just saw a miracle, but you know what's more important than that miracle? That you understand the Word of God. Let us be a people who want to encourage one another, who want to hold one another accountable, who want to walk alongside one another through this journey who want to share the word with each other, who want to have the word shared with us, who want to be in a situation where it is taught to us and explained to us and applied to us. Let us be sure to be a people who say, you know what? No matter what, we are going to strive to make worship and the preach word of God a priority in our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and preaching the good news among the villages of Judea, for sharing with your disciples and and, and challenging them to do the same so that they went forth and preached the good news, for giving us a picture of the preaching of the good news here in the book of Acts. And as a result of seeing it, Let us be a people who relish the preaching of the good news. Let us be men and women and boys and girls who strive to be where your word is proclaimed, who strive to be in a place where we can be together and hear from you and encourage one another and be encouraged by them. Lord, use me and and, and Pastor Tom and your servants, the elders, to to lead in this direction, to, to make the encouragement we find in what Jesus has done and in what he's going to do a central, a central, the central element of this church. We pray this in his name. Amen.